Our gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, we are reminded that you are glorified in the exaltation of your Son, Jesus Christ. You are glorified when your Son is made much of in our hearts and lives. That is why you sent your Spirit into the world. You sent your Spirit not to bring attention to himself, not to bring attention to works of men, but you sent your Spirit into the world to reveal the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to spiritually dead sinners such as us, that we would behold him, that we would see his greatness and his glory, that we would exalt him and make much of him here on this earth, even as we fulfill our God-given responsibilities out of love and gratitude toward you. Father, do that amongst us this morning. Father, there's nothing that I can say in this message or any of us even this morning to impact a heart unless your spirit works in the hearts of people. Work in each of our hearts. Illumine us. Open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see the glories of your Son. And even as we introduce this great study of the Gospel of Mark, O oh Lord, may our aim be that we would grow in our view of Jesus Christ so that we might worship Him and love Him and serve Him and be eager and zealous to tell people in this world who are lost about the glories of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You don't even know how excited I am that we are kicking off our study in this gospel. I know that it's been... Um, a few years since our church specifically walked through a gospel. And uh, I know that was a number of years that you guys did that, right? And um, I heard recently of, of a local church pastor whose name will remain unnamed, who actually walked through a gospel for 10 years. 10 years, imagine that, going through a gospel for 10 years. And um, I know that that church had a wonderful time doing that. And so I promise you that I'm not going to take 10 years to walk through the Gospel of Mark, okay? I'll only take 8 or 9, not quite 10. I'm not going to do that. Um, although somebody did get scared the other day when they saw in the marquee the title of the Gospel according to Mark. And then they saw Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And that was it. Like freaking out. Oh no, how long are you going to be? So I'm not going to take a whole decade to do that. Don't worry, we'll speed up a little bit here and there. All right? So we are looking at Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. And if you just keep your finger there in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Okay? To the right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. There are a couple of passages that are two of my favorite passages that, by way of introduction, I want us to think about as we introduce the Gospel of Mark. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse um, 3, Paul says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the image of God. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then listen to this verse. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Underline that if you haven't already in your Bibles, that last phrase there. The glory of God is seen 
In the face of who? Christ. In the face of Christ. And then go with me to John chapter 1 and verse 18. John chapter 1 and verse 18. This is John introducing his own gospel. And in John chapter 1 verse 18, he has been talking about the eternal Son of God, who is, yes, man, but he is God himself. And in chapter 1 verse 18, he says this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, from the context there, speaking of the eternal Son of God, Jesus, He has explained Him. He has exegeted God the Father for us, if you will. The Son of God is not the Father, but if we want to behold who God is, then we need to see the fact that Jesus came to exegete, to reveal, to expose to us who God is when He walked on this earth. Both of those passages, as you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, highlight for us in many other um, um, passages and verses, beloved, that Jesus Christ showed us, manifested to us, who God is. We want to know how glorious and how majestic and how splendorous and how magnificent God is. We look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is to be exalted. And the Father, if you're talking about a Trinitarian type of, uh, from a Trinitarian perspective, the Father is glorified when His Son is exalted, made much of in the power and, uh, and, and by the manifestation of the Spirit of God in spiritually dead hearts. The Spirit came at Pentecost, specifically in a new way, not to bring attention to Himself, not so that people, false teachers, can say, look at the wonders that I can perform uh, uh, by the Spirit of God. And they bring attention to themselves. No, the Spirit of God came at Pentecost to shed or to show the glory of Christ in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. That's why the Spirit came to reveal the Son. And so that's really what we want to look at in, Mar- in the Gospel of Mark in the weeks and months ahead. We have four accounts. This is why there are four accounts of, that are unfolding for us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the glories of who Christ is in His person and His work. If the Old Testament anticipates the coming of the Messiah of Jesus Christ, who we know to be as Jesus in His humanity, if the Old Testament anticipates Jesus, then the Gospels are the presentation of Jesus to us. From four different perspectives, from four different angles, we see the same person and the work of Jesus Christ with different points of emphasis, yes, as I'm going to talk about right now. And then the rest of the New Testament from the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 1 to the the book of Revelation um, explains or amplifies and even applies the person and the work of Christ to the church and to each individual believer. The Bible is the story of the triune God and the triune God has chosen to reveal Himself most perfectly in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And we see a picture and portraits of him in four different Gospels. Four different individuals writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penning Holy Scripture, write for us, pen for us, four different perspectives and pictures of Jesus Christ, showing us who Jesus is. Jesus is the main point of each and every one of these Gospels. If you're thinking about Matthew, 
Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. And what was his purpose? His purpose was to show Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah and King, specifically from the line of David. That's even why he begins with the genealogy that he begins, to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah from the lineage of David. But his point is, Jesus is King. He is the one. Luke writes largely to a broad Gentile audience, non-Jewish audience, showing Jesus, there it is, the purpose again for Luke, showing Jesus to be the Son of Man, which emphasizes His humanity, that title, Son of Man, who is the only hope for the human race as the second Adam who was victorious over sin and death. That's Luke. And then John wrote to believers, yes, to encourage believers, but more so to non-believers, John is very evangelistic in its focus. Sixty plus times the instructions are given to believe or speaks of faith, having faith in Jesus in the light of who he is, is the gospel of John. And so John tries to show Jesus as the very son of God, that he wasn't just a man. He was the very son of God, the God man who is the only hope for humanity that by believing you may have life in his name. That was his purpose in John chapter 20 that he gives. And then, of course, our wonderful little gospel, Mark. The gospel of Mark. Mark was written primarily to non-Jews, to Gentiles, non-Jews, specifically Roman Christians living in Rome. And, of course, non-believing Roman people would have read the gospel as well. But his, it seems like this, this gospel is tailored specifically for Roman Christians. And we know that he wrote to primarily the Gentiles, specifically to Roman um, um, Christians, for a few reasons. There is the language factor in the book of Mark. The way that he writes, the type of language that he uses, he often uses Latin terms over Greek ones. Latin and Greek were the common languages in Rome, and he often uses Latin terms over Greek ones in his gospel. There's also the fact that there are Aramaic expressions that are translated in the gospel of Mark and explained for us. The Romans don't, didn't speak Aramaic, or don't, don't, didn't, that wasn't the popular language in Rome. It was the more common language of Jerusalem. And so there are often times where Aramaic expressions are translated in the gospel of Mark. There was also the cultural aspect that points to the fact that this was written to Roman Christians and written in Rome. There are Jewish customs in the Gospel of Mark that are often explained, such as in chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, where Mark writes a, his own little commentary explaining the tradition of the Jewish elders concerning purification and the washing of hands and so forth. Obviously, these Gentiles wouldn't have understood all of those Jewish cultural aspects. So again and again, there are at least six or seven times where Mark is going to give some kind of an explanation explicitly or implicitly that points to the fact that these are uh, gent- this is a Gentile audience. There's no genealogy. Gentiles don't really care too much about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mark uses also a Roman system of time instead of uh, the traditional Jewish time. So those and many other cultural aspects point to the fact that Mark is writing primarily to Gentiles and specifically to Roman Christians living in Rome. So you got the language factor, the cultural factor, and then you got the stylistic factors in Mark, such as it is a fast-paced gospel. How many of you have read through the gospel of Mark and caught a couple of words in there that are repeated again and again? One is immediately. And the other one is and or then, right? 
both of those words immediately is used some 42 times in the Gospel of Mark. And the conjunction and begins 12 of 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, adding to the rush of action. It is simple. It's The language of Mark is the most simplest of language. So quick, so straightforward. It's the gospel that keeps on moving. Jesus is constantly on the move, constantly speaking, constantly doing. Why? Because most of the people of Rome were people who were illiterate. They would not have been able to read. And so they were the, the, the types of people that, that are, are about to give us the quick facts kind of people. It was the give us the quick facts kind of society or culture in Rome. Somebody has written this, to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting is to feel hemmed in by crowds, wearied by their demands, besieged by the attacks of demons. It is the Gospel of action. It is the Gospel of action. When was the Gospel of Mark written? And these are all introductory Uh, things for you to know. I think it's important for us, and I'll talk to you about the pertinence of this, especially this here. When was the gospel written? Most likely, most conservative scholars believe between A.D. 65 and 68. And this date might not mean very much to us until we examine a little bit of what was going on in the historical context in which Mark writes. If you know your history a little bit, your first century history, It was written, this gospel, in connection with the persecution under Nero. Nero. Nero was a wicked Roman emperor. He committed suicide in A.D. 68. But four years earlier, on July A.D. 64, the Roman emperor Nero burned down the city of Rome. And you know what he did? He used the Christians as a scapegoat and blamed the Christians for the burning of the city. And this led to a great persecution of the Christian church. This conflict eventually also led to the first of three of what we know to be the great Jewish wars that happened in A.D. 66-73. And so the point is, while there's no stated purpose in the Gospel of Mark, as in John chapter 20, verses 30-31, to Mark wrote in a very, very tumultuous time, A.D. 65-68, to somewhere in there where Christians, beloved, were experiencing great persecution. That was the historical context. Imagine the society in which you live that gave certain freedoms to Christians up until that point. Yes, with some persecution and opposition. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's against Christianity, and the emperor has blamed Christians for the burning of the city. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the suffering? Can you imagine the affliction and the anguish? And so if you're going to ask the question of what was Mark's purpose for writing then the Gospel of Mark, even though there's no stated purpose, I think we can say at least two things. One, he wrote it in a pastoral way to encourage his Gentile brethren, his fellow Christians, Roman Christians living during that time. I mean, it was a very difficult, stressful time where there's a lot of opposition and persecution. On top of that, early church history tells us that it was around this time when Peter was also martyred and eventually Paul as well. Two years before the, the uh, burning of the city of Rome, um, James, the half-brother and head of the Jerusalem church, uh, James was martyred as well, according to church tradition. Many others who were eyewitnesses of the life of Christ, not necessarily just the apostles, but other followers of Jesus by this time were dying and being martyred for their faith. 
And so Mark writes to preserve the apostolic tradition. The fact that these individuals had seen the person in the life of Jesus, and he wants to bring out the glory of who Jesus is to encourage his fellow brethren about, in the midst of all that they're going through. So it was written for encouragement. These Roman Christians were to be devoted followers of Jesus, lovers of Jesus, even in the midst of everything that they were going through. But there was also an evangelistic purpose, not just a an, uh, purpose of encouragement. There was an evangelistic purpose for which Mark writes, showing Jesus to be the suffering servant Savior that they might repent and believe in Him and follow Him. Not only are the words and the works of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Mark, but as you read through the Gospel, just highlight all the different um, records that Mark provides for us of the response to the person and the work of Jesus. He wants to highlight the fact that Jesus was always looking for faith. Jesus was always looking for belief in His name. And so there are these, these uh, accounts of, of people's responses to the claims of Jesus Christ and to the works of Jesus Christ. Mark writes with an evangelistic purpose. And in fact, we see that even in the structure of the book of Mark. If you think about the book of Mark, think of it in two parts. And that's how we're going to study it in the next year or so. And maybe past that. Five, six, seven, ten years. No, I'm just kidding. Think of the structure this way. The first Eight chapters of the book of Mark really are the presentation of Jesus as the suffering servant Savior. The presentation of Jesus as a suffering servant Savior. And everything climaxes into chapter 8 where Jesus explicitly, before that he had been telling people to be quiet concerning his name, silencing people, but Jesus explicitly in Mark chapter 8 asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? What is the popular opinion of from people of who I am. And of course, they give him various answers. And then remember what he does. But who do you, apostles, say that I am? And you see Peter's great confession, right? Peter confesses Jesus is, is the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is upon that confession of, of Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is not going to build his church. And from that time, beloved, after that question, Jesus talks about his, his demands for those who want to follow after him. And he begins explicitly then to set his sight and communicate to his disciples how he is going to now head to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer. He begins in chapter 9 to the end of the book then to focus upon the passion of Jesus as the suffering servant Savior. So the first eight chapters of the book present Jesus as a suffering servant Savior. The latter eight chapters of Mark present Jesus and his passion as the suffering servant Savior. And so that's how we're going to study the book of Mark. So Mark has this twofold purpose of encouragement for his brethren, as well as an evangelistic purpose that those who behold the glory of Jesus Christ in his words and his works would believe in his name because that's the only way that you and I can be restored to our creator, right? We are all sinners. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Mark will make that point explicitly and implicitly in what he logs down in the Gospel of Mark. And the only hope is that we would trust in Jesus so that we might be clothed in Jesus' righteousness, not claiming a righteousness of our own because we all fall short of the glory of God, right? So there's an evangelistic purpose as well in the Gospel of Mark. Now I realize that's a lot of detail. 
Okay, and I'm going to actually provide something for Ruth to post as well on our website um, or under the, um, the, uh, the email that she sends out every week with more details, uh, introductory details surrounding the Gospel of Mark. If you are um, uh, an eager Berean and you want to delve even deeper into some things or you have other questions about the Gospel of Mark in the background, we're going to do that, okay? I'm going to post that for you and some other resources as well. But this morning, I want us to hang our thoughts in our remaining time, to hang our initial thoughts on two hooks as we introduce the Gospel of Mark as well, okay? There are two important, life-changing reasons why we should study the Gospel according to Mark. Two important, life-changing reasons why we should study the Gospel according to Mark. One of them is because of the restored messenger who pens the Gospel of Mark. Because of the restored messenger. And the second one, is going to be because of the glorious message that is the Gospel of Mark. The restored messenger and the glorious message. That, those are two important, life-changing reasons, beloved, why we should study the Gospel according to Mark. Let's look, first of all, at the restored messenger, who is John Mark. John Mark, the testimony, the unanimous testimony of the early church, is that John Mark... The cousin of Barnabas, according to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, was the author of this book. There are some early church fathers who, and others who understood John Mark to be the interpreter. They would refer to him as uh, the interpreter of Peter. And by interpreter, they meant that Peter was the most significant source of Mark's gospel. Not the only source, as we're going to see in a minute, but he was the most significant source of Mark's Gospel. So John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. I always love studying the life of a writer. Um, I was an English major back at, at college, and over the years, as I've read as I've read autobiographies and all of that, one of the, the fascinating things is to study the background and even the historical circumstances that moved a writer to pen a particular work. That some of these become classics. Why? Because they were forged, these writings, on the very fires of the the real-life experiences of those writers, right? Well, same thing for John Mark, beloved. Even in a greater way, in a spiritual, supernatural kind of a way. God did an amazing work in the life of John Mark. John Mark was a testimony of the grace of God. And so who is this John Mark? If you you remember a a year and a half ago or so, when we were in Colossians chapter 4, we looked at of various individuals, partners of Paul, and we did a little bit of a um, of a background uh, in the book of Acts of of John Mark, and so I want us to do that again this morning. Okay, turn in your Bibles to to Acts chapter twelve. Acts chapter twelve. Just keep something in Mark chapter one verse one because we're going to come back to that. The book of Acts is the continuation of the church growing or the birthing of the church and then the we see how the, the continuation of Jesus's work on this earth where his disciples now are catapulted into the world to make disciples preaching Christ and when we get to Acts chapter 12 there is persecution there was a lot of persecution and suffering in the early church Herod begins to persecute some Christians. And in chapter 12 of Acts, verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. That is James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, not the James, the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. This is James, 
One of the sons of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder are put to death. Others are persecuted. And then Peter is put into jail. And an angel miraculously comes in and um, um, frees Peter out of jail. And then Peter flees, if you notice with me in chapter 12, verse 12. He flees to what was believed to be a common place where the early church gathered. And when he realizes, verse 12, when Peter realizes he went to the house of Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but specifically she's identified as the mother of John. That's his Jewish name, who was also called what? Mark. Mark was his Gentile name, where many were gathered together and were praying. And the sense there is that that was continually they gathered together. This was a common place. Peter knows where to go, where to flee in Jerusalem. There are many other places that he could have gone, but he knows exactly where he's going because the implication here is that this was a regular gathering place for the early church. And so they're here praying together. And what we see here is that this is the home of Mary, probably a widow, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. It's identified as his, this is identified as John's home as well. Look at chapter 12, verse 25. Later on, it was evident that this John Mark is a promising young man because Barnabas and Saul, it says, returned from Jerusalem. They had gone to, Jer- to, uh, to Jerusalem to deliver an offering for the famine in Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, being from the church at Antioch, they returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So they brought him with them to Antioch. This young man. We don't know a lot of details about him, only that he was with them. And then in chapter 13, we have the record of, 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 uh, of Barnabas and Saul, eventually Paul, being commissioned to their first missionary journey by the church at Antioch. And notice who goes with them. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had, notice, John as their helper. This is the same John Mark of chapter 12, verse 25. He was with them, and he's described here as their helper. So this missionary journey has these two prominent leaders Uh, Barnabas and Saul and this helper, John Mark. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for this young man. But something significant happens when you get to chapter 13, verse 13 of Acts. Notice, And the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, But notice, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John abandons the mission. John leaves them. We don't know why. There's no expansion from Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, about why he left them. Was it too difficult? Was there an argument? Was there, did he disagree with the vision? We don't know. Simply, he abandoned the mission. Jumps ship. This is about A.D. 47 to 49. Fast forward to Acts chapter 15 and verse 37. This is approximately three years later to Acts 15, 36. And it says this, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul is saying, Barnabas, let's go back. And in our, during our first missionary journey, we planted some churches. There were some churches birthed. Let's go back and visit those brethren. Second missionary journey, in other words. And notice verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, verse 40, and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So notice what happens here. Some three years later, after Mark's defection, after he, he abandoned the mission, the first missionary journey, three years later, there's the possibility now of a second missionary journey. Church at Antioch is going to send these guys out again. And there's a disagreement that arises because Barnabas wants to take his family member, his brother in the Lord also, John called Mark. And Paul is saying, no way, man. No way. He abandoned the mission. And so he ends up taking Silas. There's a disagreement. And these two brothers, Barnabas and Paul, go separate, go separate ways. Being committed by the brethren in Antioch. It says in verse 40, maybe there's an evidence there, maybe, that the church at Antioch was supportive of Paul, who chose Silas and left for that particular mission. We don't know, right? But there's this conflict that arises, and we see this issue surrounding this man, John Mark, this brother in the Lord, John Mark. Now, we don't hear again about Mark for about until about 10 years later. 10 years later. And it's Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote four what we call prison epistles during his first Roman imprisonment. Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. He's on house arrest in Rome, and he writes these four epistles. And he writes this. This is ten years after the disagreement um, in Acts chapter 15. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Aristarchus... My fellow prisoner sends you his greetings. He's writing to the church at Colossae, just greeting them on behalf of different partners that are with him. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, excuse me, welcome him. Welcome him. So by the time of Paul's first Roman imprisonment, some 10 years after the disagreement of Barnabas and Paul, you find Paul on house arrest in Rome, and he writes, and one of the men who are with him, who are his fellow prisoners, who are there supporting him, is Mark. And he writes to the Colossian church, if he comes to you, welcome this man. Welcome Mark. Who knows what he wrote to them concerning him, what he wrote to the, to the Colossian church specifically. But he asked him to welcome John Mark. It was during that same imprisonment that Paul writes Philemon. And in verse 24 of Philemon, it says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. And listen to this. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So by Paul's first missionary uh, Roman imprisonment, beloved, here's the point. Mark had become one of Paul's fellow workers. Ten years after the, the separation of Paul and Barnabas, by this time now, Mark is valuable. Mark is valuable. How did he go from failure to fellow worker? 
Well, most believe that after Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, Mark stayed in Rome with none other than Peter, who was there in Rome until right before A.D. 64, Nero's persecution started. Eventually, according to church tradition, Peter was martyred. But during the latter stages of Peter's life, John Mark is with Peter. He's with him in Rome. We know this because Peter, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, And verse 13 writes this. Listen to this. He writes to persecuted Christians all over Asia Minor. And and Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5.13. She who is in Babylon, she referring to the church in Rome, I think there. And Babylon is a cryptic title, another name for Rome. She, the church who is in Babylon in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And listen to this. And so does my son, Mark. Mark. Peter refers to Mark as a, as a spiritual son. A spiritual son who he had inevitably taken under his wing for a time and, and invested into, into a, a Mark. Please note, Peter had known Mark for at least 20 years. Going back to Acts chapter 12, when Peter shows up at Mary's house, John Mark's mother's house. He had known him for at least 20 years. John Mark had been exposed to the early church. He had been exposed to the preaching of the early church, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had seen a mother, Mary, who was a widow, who had faith in Jesus Christ, who was a devoted woman of God. And he was acquainted with Peter. He had been at least a year then later on in his life, around the year 63-64, around Peter and interacted with Peter. And again, the consistent testimony of the early church is that Peter was the eyewitness from which Mark based most of his gospel. Not all of it. As I just said, John Mark was, had, had enough of a dose of exposure to the early church. Even his mother hosting the early church. But Peter left his imprints on the gospel of Mark. I mean, there are times as we walk through this gospel that there are going to be vivid details given that only an eyewitness could have given Mark so that he could pen those, uh, those details that are not even necessarily pertinent. You would think that they're secondary, but Mark includes them in there because Peter passed that on to him. Obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But also, please don't miss this. Please don't miss this, beloved. As we study this book, Mark was a key member of of the mission of the gospel. He was a key member. He became a loyal and useful member of the mission of God, even after defecting some years earlier. Isn't that amazing? Listen, Mark is written by John Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also forged on the very fires of his own life experience with the Christ who had saved him, who had given him essentially a second chance. Obviously saved him uh, from hell and delivered him from his sins, but also even as a believer, whenever John Mark became a Christian, even then he had defected and he had been unfaithful to his call during the first missionary journey, and God was gracious to him. God was gracious to him. How loyal and useful had Mark become in Paul's second and final Roman imprisonment? When he writes 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it's evident that that Paul is not going to get out of this imprisonment. He's going to die. He writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Only Luke is with me. And he says to Timothy, Pick up Mark. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. 
Mark had become a useful servant, an important contributor to the gospel. And Paul wanted John Mark with them. And beloved, think about that. As John Mark is a living testimony of the the gospel of the grace of God, aren't each and every one of us as well? How many of us cannot say if we're we're Christians this morning and we've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior? How many of us could not look back as the video plays in our minds of our lives or our life story? Could we not say, boy, God has been gracious. I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. We can say that. Amen. John Mark writes with that kind of passion and heart. Listen, there's a high price to pay for a guy like John Mark during the first century when he penned this gospel, for him to pen that kind of a gospel because there are people being martyred, believers being killed, beheaded, burned at the stake, being crucified, upside down, some of them, like Peter. If he pens a gospel like this that is a written record of this one who was believed to have been against the Roman Empire, don't you think that his life is at stake? What compels a man to put together such a book like this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when his very life is in danger? I'll tell you what compelled him. He was so captivated by Jesus Christ, his person and his work, that he was propelled to write about the one that he loved. As beautiful and magnificent and infinitely glorious. That's why John Mark writes, so that we might behold Jesus, the suffering servant, Savior. This is what Christ came to do, beloved. If you're sitting here this morning, what, do we, what is the lesson that we learn from this restored messenger who is John Mark who pens this gospel? Is that even in the midst of your failures and your past sins, if you're a believer, God in Christ Jesus can forgive you, right? He can restore you in, in Jesus. He can renew you. You could be useful to Him. You need to be useful for Him, using your spiritual gifts and abilities and experiences for the glory of Christ and the edification of His people. Don't talk about how many mistakes and sins you committed in the past. If you are repentant and you've come before the Lord confessing those sins, there is forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration so that you might serve Christ by serving His people, right? Mark was was a token of the grace of God. And each and every one of us, beloved, are tokens of the grace of God as well. So we study the Gospel of Mark, and it's important for us to do so because of the restored messenger who pens it. John Mark, he was a restored messenger. Secondly, because of the glorious message that it contains. We study the Gospel of Mark, and it's a life-changing thing to do so because of the glorious message that it contains. And that message is given to us in the title of Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you go back over there. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the title, verse 1, of Mark's gospel. There is no definite article in chapter 1, verse 1, by the way. There's no the beginning. There's no the. It just goes right in, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You think Mark is eager to tell the story? He's eager, right? He wants to tell concerning Jesus Christ. Just gets right into it. No genealogies, no intro, no fancy-schmancy stuff. Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me tell you about this, Roman Christians, brethren. What, who he is, and what he did. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now I realize that when we hear the word gospel there in verse 1, there's all kinds of baggage concerning and surrounding the word gospel these days. It's used six times in this book, the gospel of Mark. I think we need to define what this means. You know, when the... 
When Mark uses the word gospel, he's not using the word as we would today when we reference one of the, the gospels, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, or Luke, or John. He's not using the word gospel in that way. Also, the word gospel was not, um, did not find its origin in Christianity, if you will. Evangelion, gospel, good news is what it means, was not exclusively a Christian word. It would have been well understood by both Gentiles and Jews in the first century church. To the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world, the secular world, the word gospel could refer to the announcement of good news by a conquering emperor, announcing the glad tidings of his victory from the battlefield, or to the heralding of the good news from a Roman leader concerning his accomplishments and his glory and so forth. It could also mean the good news announcing a new heir, a new emperor who had been born, in that day and age, that would supposedly rule and bring people what they wanted according to their own definition. So the good news, gospel, was used in the secular sense as well, in that sense of good, good tidings. But to the Jews, the word referred to Yahweh's salvation, to God's deliverance. And specifically, as Mark uses it in the Gospel of Mark and then the rest of the New Testament, Gospel primarily refers to the saving, listen to me because this is very significant in light of many things that are going on in our society right now. Gospel refers to the saving message of God through Jesus Christ. That's it. And we're going to unpack it right now. Gospel refers to the saving message of God through Jesus Christ. It's centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel surrounding the, or emphasizing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is of first importance, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel of first importance, culminating in the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. It is a message, beloved, to be proclaimed so that when you go to the book of Acts, you hear the message of the gospel being proclaimed, spoken, preached, shared, taught by the many in the early church. The gospel is not practicing generosity, though we should practice generosity. The gospel is not the social gospel that emphasizes giving money to worthy causes surrounding social justice and, 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 and alleviating or even ending poverty as if we could ever do that. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not moralism. You become a better person and the gospel is the key to doing that. And you can do that on your own accord. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not prosperity. The gospel is not the social gospel. People can be committed to doing good. Beloved, listen. People can be committed to doing good in our society from their own perspective and according to how they define it by being generous and doing all of that in our country and all over the world, places like Africa and Southeast Asia and poverty-stricken areas in, in Latin America. People can be committed to doing that all the while rejecting Jesus. All the while rejecting the risen Savior. And it doesn't matter ultimately to the Lord. And even in evangelicalism, in so-called Christianity all around our country, there are people who give generously, quote-unquote, to causes surrounding the social gospel and social justice and poverty and all of these other things that are very worthy causes, as we're going to see. But those things are not the gospel. And these people think that they, are, that they are righteous because of the fact that they are contributing to these things, all the while rejecting Jesus as Savior and as Lord of their lives. 
We have a Christless Christianity in so many circles in our country and all over the world. Christless Christianity. Where people are committed to doing good to mankind, according to how they define that, but they reject the suffering servant Savior who is the exalted Christ. They reject Him. I can tell you firsthand, having spent five or six years with a nonprofit organization surrounding efforts to alleviate suffering, hungry children all over the world through the local church and uh, uh, trying to, to work uh, with and efforts towards social justice and all of these things, that I traveled and took many people from this country, big, uh, big money people, so that they might contribute to these causes. And listen, they did not love Jesus. They didn't love Christ. It was all about their own merits and feeling good about giving some of their money away. So we need to be very, very careful. The gospel, beloved, is a message to be proclaimed. Now, does that mean that doing good, practicing mercy, compassion, generosity, being concerned about social justice and all of these things, that it's not, it's, it, it's not something that we should be concerned about? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But we need to distinguish between the root and the fruit, if we can think of it that way. The root, the gospel, is the basis and source of our salvation. That's where it begins. If you want to do good works that glorify God, you do them as a believer, having confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then you are to be devoted to good deeds, a la Titus. Remember? God is not against good works. God is not against generosity. God is not against us alleviating the, the hunger of suffering children all over the world. God is not against us being concerned for social justice. Absolutely not. But if we try to do that in a Christless way, detached from Jesus, then we are punching at air, beloved. Because only the gospel that transforms the human heart and deals with sin is able to deal with all of those problems in a profound, eternal kind of way, in a new heavens and a new earth, right? Where righteousness and justice dwells. The difference between the root and the fruit. The fruit... Our spirit-empowered, listen, as a believer, spirit-empowered, necessary and natural fruit comes from our hearts out of the transformed life that drives us to do good deeds for the glory of God. I'll say that again. The fruit are the spirit-empowered, necessary and natural outflow of a transformed life onto good deeds. You can't talk about being a Christian, and we're going to learn this from the life of Jesus too. And you're not concerned about people being wronged? You're not sensitive to the needs of other people in our society, especially believers? You're not concerned about doing good to fellow mankind? You don't care? You're indifferent? You need to ask yourself some spiritual questions about where you're at with the Lord. Either you're not in the Lord, or you need to get back into Scripture to see even the life of Jesus, how he was very concerned about doing justice and mercy and practicing compassion toward people in the Gospel of Mark, right? Jesus was concerned about that. So the Gospel certainly has implications and application for everything in our lives, our personal and communal lives, but it's first and foremost a message about Jesus. Jesus was most concerned, beloved, in the Gospel of Mark with people knowing Him. He is the good news. And he came proclaiming himself in human form, adding humanity to his deity. He was showing, the pe showing people of his day his glory through his words and his works. He is the good news. 
And so constantly, what do we find Jesus doing in the Gospels? He's seen and heard speaking and teaching at least 10 times. Explicitly, Jesus is seen teaching or preaching. And many other times, implicitly, he's constantly teaching concerning himself and the realities of his kingdom that he's ushering in. If you will believe in his name, you can be a part of that kingdom, right? He teaches in the synagogues concerning himself. He teaches in the temple, teaches in homes, formal or informal gatherings, teaches individuals, small groups or multitudes. He teaches as he's sitting. He's teaching as he's standing. He's teaching as he's walking. He's constantly teaching concerning himself because the gospel, beloved, is concerning a central person. And that central person is Jesus Christ, the son of God. He is the central person of the gospel. Christ. And his name is utterly significant. In verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is he? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Whenever you say that, is it pleasant for you, by the way? Jesus. The name given to him by the angel at birth. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Oh, how sweet the name of Jesus. Amen? How sweet. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation. And Christ is not his last name, by the way. Right? It's the Greek equivalent, Christ is, of the Hebrew, which means Messiah or anointed one. It is a title, beloved, befitting a king. When one was affirmed for an office, he was anointed for that office to fulfill that office. See, for many of us, these names have become so common that we lose sight of their significance. But listen to me. When you say, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand what you're saying? Lord means sovereign ruler, sovereign one. And Jesus means that you're affirming that he is your savior. He's delivered you from your sins. And Christ means that He is your King. He's the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. If Jesus is the Lord, if you refer to Him as the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saying He's my Sovereign Savior and King. Amen. And that's what He is to us, beloved. He's the one that we come and celebrate every Sunday morning. He's the one that we live for. He is the center and circumference of everything in our lives. As single people, as married people, as church people here, right, Christians. Out in society, doing our mission. He is the one that we exist to proclaim, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we proclaim. Now to the Jews, the title Christ evoked different ideas and views as to the role of the promised coming Messiah that they were anticipating. Such as when would he finally arrive? How would he be recognized? And what exactly would he do? People had questions about that and there were varying opinions about that. Some well-to-do Jews, such as the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, were very comfortable with their status. They were very comfortable with the privileges that the Roman government had given them. They did not want to believe in Jesus because they understood that if they believed in Jesus, they would probably lose their privileges from the Roman government. Right? But for most Jews, they viewed Messiah as a Moses-type figure who would deliver the Jews. Listen. From the political Roman oppression of the day, he would establish David's kingdom in Jerusalem, and he would rule with justice into the future. Most Jews were looking for a conquering political deliverer, an earthly savior who would deliver them from all oppression in their culture and in their context, and that day was the Roman oppression. That's not what they got, right? That's not what they got, at least at the time. So ultimately, he will be that and more, right? This is why for many Jews, they rejected Jesus. 
The concept for them of a suffering, crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. An oxymoron, as someone has said, concerning the suffering Messiah. And that idea, it was the equivalent of calling a prisoner on death row Mr. President. Think about that. Would you call a prisoner on death row Mr. President? To some people of Jesus' day, a suffering Messiah was like that. How could we do that? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. He refers to the cross of Christ as a stumbling block to the Jews, as a scandal. It was a ludicrous, shocking thing for their Messiah, their King, to suffer. Beloved, most Jews of Jesus' day were looking for perfect justice, total deliverance from the oppression that would come when the Messiah would come. But what they failed to recognize is that more than their physical, earthly oppression at the hands of men, they needed to be delivered from their spiritual, the spiritual oppression of their sin. And they were not willing to embrace one who had come as a suffering servant savior to do that first and foremost so that they would be a part of a new heavens and a new earth in the future where justice dwells forever and ever and we're worshiping Christ forever and ever. Right? They were short-sighted. And they lost focus of the main thing. Christ was there. The king was inaugurating and offering them a literal kingdom. And they rejected him. Most Jews did, especially the religious leaders. What they needed was a new heart. A new heart. So that they see seeking to be their own kings and defining a kingdom uh, according to earthly standards. And they needed a new heart so that they, they would see Christ for the king that he is and the kingdom that he ushers in, right? That's what they needed. A suffering Messiah did not fit their paradigm. But this is what I want us to see in Mark, beloved. The theme of Mark is Jesus presented as a suffering servant Savior. In fact, if you were to highlight a theme verse, it's Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45 says this, For even though the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He came to serve. And ultimately, how was that displayed? In the fact that He went to the cross to give His very life as a ransom for many. As a payment for our sins. Taking upon the wrath of God for our sins. Rising from the dead, conquering sin and death. For you, if you would believe in Him and embrace Him, right? As the glorious Christ that He is. He came to serve. There are more miracles in Mark than any other gospel in proportion to the length of Mark. Jesus heals sicknesses, casts out demons, feeds hungry people. And all of this was meant primarily to point to who He is, that people would believe in Him. And beloved, He didn't do those things, compassion and mercy and kindness and healings and feeding of hungry people. He did not do those things with ulterior motives, right? Or just for show. Jesus is shown in Mark to be a sympathetic, suffering servant who cares genuinely for the physical needs of humanity, but he understood more than anyone else that those things were reflective of a sin-cursed, broken world, so he wanted them to believe in him so that they wouldn't have to suffer that way anymore as they believe in his name. Right? They were attesting miracles that that he performed, pointing to who he is as the only hope for humanity. That's why he did those miracles. But he genuinely cared about people. He came to serve God by serving people to the point of dying for sinners. 
It has been said that a great man shows his greatness by the great way that he treats little people. A great man shows his greatness by the great way that he treats little people. Listen, if that's true, then wasn't the the greatest example of greatness the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus, who, though a king, eternally God, having been in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity, treated little people with kindness, right? The insignificant and the outcast of society, Jesus modeled for us, Kindness and mercy that was genuine, not forced or coerced. And so one thing that we're going to learn again and again in the book of Mark, beloved, that we need to love people and be concerned for people, genuinely sympathize with the hurts and those pains of our fellow mankind, and do everything that we can to do good works for the glory of God and care for people's needs. And the greatest thing that we can also do is extend to them the message of the gospel that ultimately delivers them from the wrath of God, from their sins, and from the evils of society, right? And a new heavens and a new earth. As we close our time, we see also that He is the Son of God. And I'm not going to take time to unpack that because we're going to see that next week. From the very beginning of Mark, it's evident Jesus is not just another man, but God, a very God as well. He's presented that way throughout through His words and His works, and especially in His passion in chapter 9 to the end, especially shows that the God-man suffered, died, and rose again victoriously. Mark's message, the Gospel, beloved, That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, came to suffer, die, and rise again is our only hope, right? Our only hope. You may be be here this morning. I would encourage you. Today is the day when you need to be confronted with the suffering servant Savior. He's your only hope. He's your only hope. And I would challenge us, even as we work through the Gospel of Mark, be reading through this Gospel and be, be just relishing in the person and the work of Jesus. Amen? Beholding Him daily. Well, next week we're going to begin to behold our suffering servant Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in verses 2 through 13. All right? Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I just thank You so much. I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for Your mercy. I thank You for the beautiful person and the work of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the glorious one. He is the one that we desire to behold. Oh, Lord, I pray that by Your Spirit You would just... Inflame our hearts with a passion for the sake of his person and his work. Lord, as we go through the series in the Gospel of Mark, I pray that for your people, for us who are believers, as we look and we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, a persecuted society, I pray that, Father, we would all the more be filled with enduring grace and enduring power in this society to live for your glory as we behold the person of our Lord. And I pray for those who do not know you, Lord, that they would afresh come to understand Jesus as the one who came that they might have hope, but it will cost them everything, everything. I pray that they would deny themselves, take up his cross, and follow after him for the rest of their lives, Father. May you do that amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.